Hey, it's good to be back with you after a couple of weeks. There we go. Um, appreciate Mike preaching a couple of weeks for me, a, a couple of weeks ago for me, and then Bobby did a great job last week. And so, if you uh, missed any of that series, this is my story. It's on our podcast and on Facebook and website and all of that stuff. And so, I would encourage you to go back and, and take a listen to that. But today, we're beginning a new series of messages called All In. And so, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some, I think, several familiar passages of Scripture. Uh, and we're going to try and dis- discover and, and decide what it means to be all in in the 21st century, what that looks like for us. We're also going to look at a couple of maybe not so uh, familiar passages of Scripture, and I'm excited about those uh, messages as well. There's one in particular that's uh, probably my favorite Old Testament story, but you very rarely ever hear it talked about in church, maybe in Sunday school when you were a kid every now and then. But, but it didn't get a lot, of, a lot of play, and so I'm excited about that message as well. Did you know, a little over 100 years ago, there was a group of people who became known as one-way missionaries. They, they purchased single tickets to the mission field without the return ticket uh, to, to home. And instead of packing their suitcases, they packed all of their earthly belongings into coffins, into caskets. And as they sailed out of port, they waved goodbye to everyone that they loved, and everything that they knew, knowing that they were never going to return home. A.W. Milne was one of those missionaries. He set sail for the New Hebrides in, in the South Pacific. And he knew full well going into this mission that, that every headhunter who had lived there, and did live there, had martyred every single missionary that had gone to that area before him. But Milne wasn't afraid, because he had learned that in order to do this, he was going to have to die to self to live for Christ. And so Milne wasn't worried about it. He had died to self and he had his coffin packed. He packed his casket to go to this place. And for 35 years, A.W. Milne lived among the tribe of the South Pacific and they loved him. And when he died, the tribe members buried him in the middle of their, vi- in the middle of their village and they inscribed this epitaph on his tombstone. It said, when he came there was no light. And when he left, there was no darkness. Man, that's a powerful statement. Because one person said, I'm going to die to myself. I am going all in. This is what it looks for me to be all in. I am dying to self so that I can live for Christ. And, and a group of people who did not know Jesus before he came said, when he, when he got there, we were in the dark. And when he left, when he died, there was no darkness. And that's powerful, but probably not very easy, was it? And can I just ask a question this morning? And honestly, I'm asking myself this question as much as I'm asking you all. And this is kind of a rhetorical question, so you don't have to, to answer it. Don't feel pressured to answer it. But when did we start believing that God wanted us to, that God wants to send us to, to safe places to do easy things? That, that faithfulness is just sort of holding the fort. When did we start believing that? When did we start start believing that playing it safe was safe, that, that radical was anything but normal. Look, we have this misconception that somehow Jesus died to make us safe, but Jesus didn't die to make us safe. In fact, Jesus died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness isn't holding the fort. Faithfulness isn't just camping out where we're at and, and, and holding camp here. No, faithfulness is storming the gates of hell. Faithfulness is, 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 is being all in on the will of God. And look, the will of God is not an insurance plan. It's a daring plan. And, and the complete surrender of your life to the cause of Christ isn't radical. It's normal. This series, All In, is to encourage us to, to quit living our lives 
as if the purpose of our life is just to arrive safely at death. I think that's how we often live, though, isn't it? Like, hey, just, I just want to get to the finish line. I just want to get there. Don't, don't, don't bump me along the way. Don't, don't pull me out of my comfort zone along the way. Just let me get to the finish line and everything will be all right. You know what, when we have funerals, and especially in open casket funerals, what do we say? We walk up to, to the body and we say to the family, well, they look good, all right? I mean, because that's the polite thing to say. That's what we're supposed to say. But I tell you, when I, when, whenever my time comes, I don't want anybody to come up to my casket and say, well, he looks good, which they're not going to probably say that anyway. I mean, that's, you, you got to work with what you got. But I want, I want it to look like, man, he lived hard. He was all in. He went all in on this, and, and you can tell because his body is tired. His body is worn out. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said this. He said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. This series is to encourage us to take up our cross and to follow him. To go all in and all out for the all and in. For the all in all. Because I'm telling you, I just think it's time for us to start packing. Instead of packing our suitcases and gathering possessions, to start packing our caskets. To start packing our coffins. And to be ready to go all in. This take up your cross daily and follow me. More the disciples took that literally. Do you know that almost every disciple, every apostle that Jesus had was martyred. In AD 44, King Herod ordered that James the Greater be thrust with a sword. He was the first of the apostles to be martyred, and it really was just the beginning of the bloodbath. Luke, who, who wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke and, and the book of Acts, he was hung by the neck from an olive tree in Greece. Doubting Thomas, you remember him, he was pierced with a, with a pine spear and tortured with red-hot plates and then burned alive in India. In AD 54, the proconsul of Heropolis had Philip tortured and crucified because the proconsul's wife converted to Christianity after hearing Philip preach. Matthew was stabbed in the back in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was flogged to death. James the Just was thrown off the southeast pinnacle of the temple there in Jerusalem. And after surviving the more than 100-foot fall, that didn't kill him, they clubbed him to death with a, with a hammer that the blacksmiths used. Simon the Zealot was crucified. Thaddeus was beaten to death with sticks. Matthias was stoned to death and then beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. John, the Apostle John, John the Beloved, he's the only disciple to die of natural causes. And he only died of natural causes because he survived his own execution. Uh, the Emperor Diocletian, he threw him into a, a, a pot of boiling oil. And when that didn't kill him, he sent him off to the island of Patmos to live there in exile until he died. And Fortunately for all of us, John outlived him. And so he came back to, to Ephesus, and while he was at Ephesus, he wrote three letters to the, to the church that we know as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And there he died of natural causes. I think every Christian living in a, in a first world country should, should read this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a reality check that puts our problems into perspective. It, it, it redefines risk, and it sets the standard for sacrifice. By, by comparison, many of our risks seem rather tame. And honestly, many of our sacrifices seem a little bit lame. Our, our normal is so subnormal that, that normal seems radical. To the first century disciples, normal and radical were the same. They were synonyms. But somehow in the 21st century, we've, we've made those words antonyms. They're, they're the opposite. 
But what we read here in Luke 9 and 23 and then verse 24, Jesus throws down the gauntlet with his disciples. He wants to see which of his disciples are, are, are in, who, who's in and who's out. Realistically, what he's asking is, are you all in? He says this, whoever wants to be my disciple, deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life, well, for me, we'll save it. The disciples took this literally, so I think we can at least take it figuratively. Now listen, I'm not suggesting that, that we all need to go out and die physically for Christ, but I am suggesting that we all must die to ourselves. If Jesus hung on a cross, we can certainly carry ours. And this isn't just a, a, a responsibility. It isn't just our greatest responsibility. It's our highest privilege. Anything less... I'm telling you, anything less than complete surrender of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus is robbing God of the glory that He demands and He deserves and is cheating ourselves out of the eternal reward that He has for us. Look, we won't come alive in the fullest, truest sense of the word until we die to self. And we won't find ourselves until we lose ourselves in the, in the cause of Christ. What I'm suggesting is that it's time for us to ante up. It's time for us to go all in. You've heard this, this expression before, I'm sure, but if Jesus is not Lord of all, then He's not Lord at all. It's, it's all or nothing. We can't just dip one toe in the water and kind of see how it feels. No, no, Jesus requires us to go to the deep end and do a cannonball in. He's, he's asking us to be all in. And look, I get it, it's difficult, and, and maybe it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, that, uh, around doing that. And I think maybe the reason it's more difficult for us is because we've... We've Americanized the gospel. Or maybe, maybe better said, we've spiritualized the American dream. I mean, we, we, have, we have this thing about, you know, two kids and a, two and a half kids. That's the American dream, right? Two and a half kids, white picket fence, dog in the backyard. Great job. We've made something spiritual about that. And that has, has replaced the gospel for, for our goal in living. We, we've, we want God on our terms, I said, God, if you'll give me all of this, then I'll do this, but, but only if you do this. And, and I'm just telling you, that's not how it works. We don't get God on our terms. That's how you get false religion. That's how you get lukewarm faith. And Jesus had a pretty graphic description about what he, what he thought about lukewarm faith. I think often we have invited Jesus to, to come and follow us instead of us following him. I guess what, I, what I'm really trying to get at is that we can only have a relationship with God on his terms. You can take it, or you can leave it, but you don't get to change the rules of engagement. The Apostle Paul defined the deal for us in this way in 1 Corinthians 5, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, I believe. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 5, he said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look at that again with me. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. The good news of the gospel is that, that this is the moment when, when we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus. Your sin is transferred to, to Jesus' account and it's paid in full. It was nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago. Your sins were nailed to a cross thousands of years ago. But that's only half the gospel. That's only half the gospel because if mercy is, is not getting what you deserve, the wrath of God then grace is getting what you do, what you don't deserve, His righteousness. We, we get mercy, we don't deserve it. We, we get, instead of getting the wrath of God, we get His righteousness. 
It's transferred to your account. And then it's like God says, okay, we're, we'll call it even now. It's like God says, I'll take the blame for everything that you have done wrong. And I'll give you credit for everything that I've done right. I mean, it just doesn't get much better than that, does it? That's why it's called the gospel. Because it's not just good news. It's the best news. Look, the gospel cost us nothing. It cost us nothing. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. It can only be given to us through the, through the free gift of God's grace. So it costs nothing. But listen to me on this. It demands everything. It demands everything. And I think this is where we get stuck. I think this is where our, our maybe our American uh, patriotism, our American dream kind of gets in the way of this. Where we, we, we get stuck in kind of this spiritual no man's land. It's like we're too Christian to enjoy sin. But we're too sinful to enjoy, to, to enjoy Christ. We, we've got just enough Jesus to be informed, but not enough Jesus to be transformed. We want, we want everything that God has to offer, but we don't want to give anything up. It's, it's like we want to buy in without selling out. We're afraid that if we don't hold out on God, that we're going to miss something out that this life has to offer. We're going to miss out on the American dream. We're going to miss out on what our neighbors have or what, or what the people down the road have or what the church down the road is doing. We're going to miss out if we don't hold out on God somehow. And let's just be honest. Let's just recognize that for what it is. It is a lie straight from the pits of hell. In fact, it is the, the original lie. It's the, it's the very same lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God isn't holding out on you. What, what did the serpent tell Adam and Eve? Said, said, don't eat from that tree. God doesn't want you to do that. Why? Because God's, God knows that if you do, you'll be like him. You, you're missing out. You're not getting the full effect of God because, because God doesn't want you to have that. That's, what, that's the lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve. And it's the same lie that we believe. Look, God isn't holding out on us. We can take Psalm 84, 11 to the bank. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. If you don't hold out on God, I can promise you this. God will not hold out on you. But it's all or nothing. It's all in or all out. It's all of you for all of Him. And maybe it's because, like I said earlier, we spiritualize the American dream that makes this so difficult for us. But maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it's just a bit of our humanistic and sinful nature. Because this isn't a, a, a 21st century problem. This isn't a 20th century problem. This is not a problem just peculiar to, to our culture. In fact, this problem isn't new at all. In fact, in, in uh, three of the Gospels, uh, we read about a person who struggled very much with this idea. You might know him as the rich young ruler. On paper, the rich young ruler, he is, he's the epitome of religiosity. But, religi but religiosity and hypocrisy, they are, they are mutual acquaintances. The rich young ruler, he is the, the complete opposite of all in. And his life is the standard warning for if we hold out on God, we'll miss out on everything. If we hold out on God, we will miss out on everything that God wants to do in us and for us and through us. That's the warning that we should all take away from the rich young ruler's life. That if we hold out on God, we will miss out on everything. I can tell you, I've never met anyone that I thought was possessed by a demon. Or, I should rephrase that. I've never met anyone that I knew for sure was possessed by a demon. There have been a few I thought, eh, maybe. But I've met a lot of people who were and are possessed by their possessions. They don't own things. Things own them. And that was true of the rich young ruler. He had everything that money could buy. He had his whole life in front of him. He called his own shots, and yet something was missing. 
Something was missing, and, and that's evidence. The, the emptiness in his soul is evidenced by the question that he asked Jesus. He asked Jesus, what am I missing? What do I lack? I've got it all, right? I've got everything. What am I missing? You know, he had everything that we think we want. He was rich. He was young. He was in a position of power. For, for people that in that day and age that really didn't travel probably more than 30 miles from their home and their life, I mean, he traveled all over the world. What more could he want? What more could he possibly, what, what could he possibly be missing? And why was he so miserable? I think the, the last question is easy to answer. Because he was following the rules. But he wasn't following Jesus. And I think that's true for a lot of people in a lot of churches. We follow the rules. We, we're, we're really good with the don't do this, don't do that, don't do all those, check those boxes. But man, we struggle when it comes to following Jesus. And you know what happens as a result? We're miserable. We're caught in that spiritual no man's land. Where, where I, I, I don't enjoy sin, but I don't follow Christ. I don't enjoy Christ. I'm, I'm informed, but I'm not transformed. The, the rich young ruler, he might be at the top of the list of the most religious people in all of Scripture. Each of the, the three gospel accounts tell us that he kept all of the commandments. He did nothing wrong. He loved his mother and his father. He kept all the Ten Commandments. He kept all the Levitical laws. He didn't eat anything that he wasn't supposed to eat. He, I mean, he did it all. He did nothing wrong. But here's the thing. You can do nothing wrong and still do nothing right. But somehow, that, that, that's, that's by definition, righteousness is doing something right. But somehow we've managed to reduce it to just doing nothing wrong. But that's not righteousness. Righteousness is doing something wrong. You, it, is, it is possible, I'm telling you, it is possible to do nothing right or nothing wrong and still do nothing wrong. We get so hyper-focused on the rules, you know, the don't do this, the don't do that kind of things, and just think, well, we'll be okay. But I'm telling you, that's holiness by subtraction. That, that's not real holiness, and honestly, it's more hypocrisy than it is holiness. I, I think it's the sins of, of omission that... The, you know, the, the what you could have, the what you should have, the, the what you should do kind of things that breaks the hearts of our Heavenly Father. Think about this if you have kids. This is why I believe this is true. I love it when my kids don't do something wrong, right? I mean, and every parent is like, they love that, right? They love when your kids don't do something wrong. But man, I love it even more when my kids do something right. Our Heavenly Father is preparing good works in advance with our names on them. That means there's something out there for us to do. That means there's a, there's a job, there's a purpose, there's a responsibility for us. Not, not just to not do anything, but to actually go and do something. It is possible to do nothing wrong and still do nothing right, but I'm telling you, God is calling us to do, to do something right. God is calling us to go. Our mission, what do we say every week our mission is? What's our mission? Oh, y'all did it much better for Bobby last week. What's our mission? Our mission is what? That's exactly it. It's not enough to just do nothing wrong. We've got to do something wrong, right. We can't just follow the rules. We've got to follow Jesus. And if we're going to lead people to love and follow Jesus, then we've got to be all in. We've got, we've got to do something. Not just sit here and have that old philosophy, well, if we build it, they will come. You know what, that works for a little while. But this building's how many years old? 12, 13, something like that. We're past that point. It's not if, they will, if you build it, they will come. It's now, it's if you go. 
you will find them and bring them. That's where we're at. We're, we got, and we've got to be all in on it. Look, the story of the rich young ruler is one of the saddest stories in the Bible, I think, because he had so much upside potential. He could have leveraged his resources. He could have leveraged his network, his energy, all for kingdom purposes. But instead, he spent it all on himself. He thought that's what would make him happy. But that's what actually made him miserable. And I think it reveals that our greatest asset can become our greatest liability if we don't use it for God's purposes. Whatever your greatest asset is, and I don't know individually what your, what your best asset is, if you don't use it for God's purpose, I know this, it will ultimately become your greatest liability. But the story of the rich young ruler doesn't just end with, with him walking away. We don't know what happened with the, the rest of his life. But I think this, and I can't prove this by any scripture, okay, so this is just me speculating. But I think the rich young ruler eventually became the, old, the, the rich old ruler. And I have no idea what he thought about as he lay on his deathbed. But I have a hunch that it was that moment, that conversation that he had with Jesus when Jesus said, follow me. And I think those words probably echoed in his ear until the day that he died. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. But he didn't have the guts to go for it. The, the, the importance of going all in, it's, it's best encapsulated, I think, in, in the parable of the, the bags of gold. You, you remember that story that Jesus told where the, the master is going to go on, on a trip. And he's going to give uh, his servants uh, some different bags of gold. And so to one servant, he gives ten bags. And, and he says, go in and do something with this. And so the, the servant goes and he invests it. And he returns with twenty bags of gold. And he gives to the, the second servant. And the second servant gets five bags of gold. And he goes out and he, he invests that. And he comes back with ten bags of gold. And then the third servant, he gives one bag of gold. And what's that servant do with it? Yeah, he goes and buries it in the ground. And when the master returns home from his trip and he asks for an account on his investments, the, the servant comes back and he gives him back exactly what the master gave him. Which, let's be honest about this, is not all that bad, especially in a recession. I mean, he broke even, right? He broke even. But what did Jesus think about that? What did Jesus think about it? He called the man wicked. He called him a wicked man. Now, we read that in, in our Bibles today, and we think, man, that might be a bit of an overreaction, don't you think? In fact, if we were there, we might have been tempted to, to play Peter and pull Jesus aside and say, hey, Jesus, you might want to tone it down a bit. Like, that, that's a little harsh. Just dial it back a notch. But here's the thing. When, when I think Jesus is wrong, it reveals something wrong with me. Usually a wrong perspective or a wrong priority. It means that I'm missing the point. The, the man who buried his gold wasn't willing to gamble on God. He didn't, he didn't even ante up. He wasn't even getting in the game. And, and that's the point of the parable, is that, that faith is pushing all of your chips to the middle of the table. You can't hedge your bets by, by setting you know, one or two chips to the side. No, you've got to be all in. It's all or nothing. And that's what Jesus is challenging the rich young ruler to do. It, he says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions. Go sell them all. Get rid of all of them. Give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Get rid of anything, get rid of everything that's going to keep you from following me. Get rid of every distraction that's going to hold you back. Get rid of every stumbling block, get rid of every concrete block that's going to tie you to your past. Get rid of all of it, and come follow me. 
Stanley Tam uh, is an old man now. He wrote a book uh, quite a few years ago called God Owns, My, God Owns My Business and He Owns Me Too. And more than 50 years ago, he made a defining decision to go all in with God. It was one of the most unique corporate takeovers in the history of corporate takeovers. Stanley Tam decided he was going to give his business to God, and so he legally transferred 51% of the shares of the company that he started to God. Now, it took uh, several lawyers to do this, mainly because the first couple of lawyers that got involved thought he was crazy. But after some creative paperwork, they were eventually able to do it, and Stanley Tam transferred 51%, the majority of his business, to God. Stanley Tam started the United States Plastic Corporation, and he started it with $32 in capital. When he gave his business back to God, annual revenues were less than $200,000. So, so a good business, a profitable business, but, but not maybe the, the mega billion, uh, million dollar business that, that we might think of. But, but Stanley believed that he wanted God to bless his business, and he believed that he, in order to do that, he had to be all in. Now, we might think if you give 51% of your company to God, that's, that's a pretty big deal. That's all in. But Stanley Tam started to, to feel convicted about the other 49% that he had kept for himself. And so on January the, the 15th of 1955, after reading the parable of the, the merchant who sold everything to get the great pearl of, of great price, Stanley made the decision to sell all of his shares, to, div to divest himself completely of the company that he started. And so, like I said, on January 15th, 1955, he sold every share of stock to his senior partner. And Stanley became a, a salaried employee of the company that he started. Stanley said it this way. He, they, when he was asked why he did this, he said it this way. He said, a man can only eat one meal, meal at a time. He can only wear one suit at a time. He can only drive one car at a time. I have all of that. Isn't that enough? That day was the day that Stanley Tam went all in with God. And from that day until now, Stanley Tam has given away more than $140 million. Stanley Tam, to the best of my knowledge, is still living at the ripe old age of 107. When I was looking uh, through this material, the only thing that I could find was a birthday picture on Facebook from last September. Uh, there is no death date, so I'm assuming he's still living. And Stanley Tam is still working for the United States Plastic Corporation and still giving all of their profits to Christian organizations serving the kingdom of God. I love that story because it, that story is a story of where the rubber meets the road. January 15, 1955 was a defining moment in Stanley Tam's life. When, when A.W. Milne set sail for the South Pacific, that was a defining moment in his life. It was the moment where they said, we're all in. I don't think you get very many defining moments in your life. I think, I think if we're lucky, you have a couple. And if I were to ask you what your defining moment is, what would you say? What, what is your defining moment? Oh, over the course of this series, my prayer is that you will begin to feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit calling you to act decisively. And look, I don't know what that looks like for you individually. But I know this. I know that if we as a church are going to be different make, difference makers in this community, if we're going to carry out the mission to lead people to love and follow Jesus, then we've got to be all in. We can't be hedging our bets, not, not holding back, but the, but the kind of all in that says, my coffin's packed. My coffin is packed, 
and I'm, and I'm dying to myself so that I can live for Christ. Look, if you're all in, great. That's great news. Let's get busy because we got work to do. But if you're not all in, maybe, maybe you're, you're one foot in, one foot out, toe just kind of testing the water, would you decide to go all in? My prayer is that if that's you in this series, that over the course of this series, you'll begin to say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm done testing the waters. I'm all in. I, I'm going to the deep end. I'm doing the belly flop, the cannonball, whatever dive you want to do, but you're going all in. Maybe you're not in. Maybe you're not even one foot in. You're, you're, at this point, you're all out. Let me just tell you, you don't have to stay that way. You don't have to stay that way. Jesus makes the same offer to you that he did to the rich young ruler. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. If you want to be all in, then be all in. If you're not going to be all in, then I'll just tell you bluntly and honestly, and maybe this is not what preachers are, are supposed to say, but be all out. If you're not going to be all in, then be all out. That's fine. But, but don't waste your time. Don't waste your time because that's what it is. It's a waste of time. If you're not all in, it's a waste of time. Be all in. And if you're all out right now, then don't stay that way. Don't stay that way. Come and, and be a part of, of what's going on. Be all in. So are you in? Are you in? More importantly, are you all in? Let me pray for us.